those who are guests for the first time, uh, I have been in a study through the book of 1 John over the last couple of months. And uh, our study has brought us to this second chapter. And uh, the Apostle John writes, and really the overarching purpose behind uh, 1 John is to give believers assurance. If you're a Christian, you need to know that you're saved and you need to have assurance of your salvation. And the Apostle John gives a series of tests throughout the five chapters of 1 John really to encourage his readers and to warn them of some false ideas. In the passage that we've really been looking at the last couple of weeks, uh, that's exactly what he does. Uh, He wants to encourage those who are in the faith, but he wants to warn them of some false ideas. So this morning, I want us to look once more at verses 18 through 27. And so if you've got your Bible there, you can read with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 18. The Scripture says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who were trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the truth and the lie. Because within this passage of Scripture, the Apostle John distinguishes between that which is true and that which is the lie or that which is false. Now, it's obvious as you read these verses, John is clear in telling these believers just why exactly he's writing to them. Uh, He says in verse 21 that he's writing to remind them of truth that they already possess, truth that they already know. And uh, he says there in verse 21, I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And he says, no lie is of the truth. A second reason that he's writing to these believers was really to warn them of some false ideas that they were being exposed to. There were some false teachers who were trying to spread some lies. And so John says in verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who were trying to deceive you. So really his overall objective in this passage is to confront false ideas while also at the same time bringing comfort to his readers. And so it's his intention to give reassurance to those who were in Jesus Christ. 
Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time really in verses 18 and 19 because the last couple of weeks I felt like I've dealt with this. Uh, But just a couple of things to notice this morning. Uh, First, consider the apostasy of false teachers. Because that's really what John is dealing with here uh, in verses 18 and 19. Uh, He's expressing his concern that his spiritual children not get caught off guard by the enemy's deception. And so really he wants them to be aware of this deception that was being introduced by these false teachers. And, and ultimately, these ideas that were being introduced uh, involved the rejection of the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It was an outright rejection of His deity. And so these false teachers and their followers had become apostates. So John is really dealing with apostasy in these verses. And someone says, well, what does that word mean? Well, apostasy, simply defined, is turning away from the truth. Apostasy is what happens when a person who uh, formerly identified with the faith walks away from that faith or denies that faith or attempts to redefine that faith uh, that has been delivered once to the saints. One definition of apostasy or an apostate is that an apostate is someone who's received light but not life. They claim to be Christian but they're not. And so that's who John is really warning his readers against here. These who knew the truth, who claimed to have believed the truth, but they've abandoned God's truth for something else. So notice a few things here. Uh, Notice first why they defect, why these false teachers defect or turn away. You'll notice John uses that word antichrist. He says it's the last hour. You've heard that antichrist is coming. He's referring to that end-time Antichrist figure. But beyond that, he wants his readers to know that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. And the spirit of Antichrist is that which denies the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what John is explaining here. In fact, Paul says something similar in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when he says that the spirit expressly says that in later times... Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. That kind of thing was already happening in the first century world. So you had these false teachers who were turning away from the faith, who were relying upon human wisdom to try to explain away the truth of the gospel, uh, diminishing the deity of Christ, even rejecting the humanity of Christ. And so John is saying this is the spirit of Antichrist. So why they defect. And then notice what they deny. Because in verse 22, John tells us what this antichrist spirit is all about. And it all has to do with the denial of the historic faith. Twisting the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a thing that Jesus said would be characteristic of the last days. Uh, He warned his disciples, uh, see that no one lead you astray. He said in the last days, many will come in his name. They'll have religious ideas, and they'll introduce those ideas to people, and they'll try to sign Jesus' name to those ideas. And so Jesus says, you need to be on guard against this kind of thing. Those who claim to speak in my name, those who claim to have some new insight, so as to lead the people away from the truth. And uh, this is the way that the enemy has tried to undermine the church of God. 
If he can't destroy the church from the outside with persecution and attack and stirring up hostility against it, he'll try to corrupt the church of the living God from the inside through introducing doctrinal confusion. So this is what John is referring to here when he speaks of this antichrist mentality. But then notice ultimately who they try to deceive. Where exactly do these antichrists come from according to what John has said here? Well, notice in verse 19, he says, these went out from us. These anti-Christian teachers were spreading false ideas, and they had formerly once identified openly with the people of God. So they had come out of the churches. They had come up with a twisted version of the gospel. They were not so much pagan opponents of the faith who were openly hostile to the gospel. No, they came from within. They had formerly identified with the believers, claiming to believe in Jesus. But it soon became apparent that the Jesus they believed in was not the Jesus of Scripture. And so what you have, you have these wolves in sheep's clothing. It's the very thing that Jesus warned about in Matthew chapter 7. Here you have these false teachers who wanted to wear Christian clothes. And, and they were really being used of the enemy to try to muddy the waters as far as the faith is concerned. So John is pointing out those who had been professors of the faith, but they had never genuinely been possessors of the faith. And this became clear because they went out from us, according to what he says. They had never been of us. So the issue, he's not talking about those who have lost their salvation. Now this passage, I know a lot of people uh, at times have been very confused, even believing that a person can lose their salvation. John, when he's talking about apostasy, he's not dealing with this issue of losing one's salvation. No, he's talking about those who were never genuinely converted to begin with. Uh, The Jesus that they claimed to know, the Jesus that they preached, was not the Jesus of the Bible. It was a watered-down denial of his deity, a rejection of his authority. And that's why John calls them antichrists. Now, one thing I pointed out last week was that the book of Jude really deals with this issue of apostasy perhaps more so than any other book of the Bible. Uh, Jude 4 says that certain men have crept in unnoticed, under the radar, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea is there's this infiltration which had happened in the churches, a satanic tactic to try to undermine the mission of God in the world. Something was going on under the radar. There were those who had infiltrated the church. By all appearances, they even seemed to be sincere. And yet, once they were trusted, they began attacking the faith, Jude says, in a couple of ways. The first way involved perverting the grace of God, turning the grace of God uh, into something that grace was never meant to be. They used grace as a license for sin. Rather than seeing grace as the work of God in their life, uh, changing their life so that they could pursue a life of holiness, they used it as an excuse for sin, an excuse to indulge in immorality. And then a second way that they attacked the faith was by denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So Jude says that, that apostasy, these apostates in the first century wanted to pervert and twist the grace of God and turn it into something that it was never intended to be, and they also want to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that kind of thing didn't just happen in the first century. It's the very thing that's happening throughout so much of the visible church in our world. There are plenty of people who want to come up with ideas that are not biblical, even contrary to the truth of God and the body of apostolic doctrine that's been delivered. They want to sign Jesus' name to their ideas. And that's why God's people need to be ever so discerning. So just like Jude, John John is describing apostasy in this passage, turning away from the faith. It's what happens when a person who once claimed to be a Christian turns away from the faith, rejects the true faith, even perhaps in favor of a cultural counterfeit. And someone says, well, again, does that person lose their salvation? No, the Bible teaches they never had it to begin with. They never had it to begin with. So that's the apostasy then of these false teachers. Now, I want you to notice a second thing this morning, and I really just want to deal with verses 20 all the way through verse 27, and it's the authenticity of true faith. Notice that uh, John kind of compares and contrasts authentic faith with that which was apostate. Notice there's a difference there uh, when he's referring to his readers in verse 20. In contrast to those who had defected from the faith were those true believers who were remaining firm in their faith. They had not fallen victim to the deception of these false teachers. They had not rejected the truth in exchange for a lie, but no, they were marked by spiritual discernment. You really see this in verse number 20. Because John says, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. In other words, there was a very real difference in them versus those who went out from them. And someone says, well, what is the difference? Well, let me tell you what the difference is. To begin with, notice that genuine believers have the Holy Spirit. That's the first difference between those who were truly converted apart from those who were not. Those who were apostate never possessed the Holy Spirit. And so when John says, you've been anointed by the Holy One, there in verse 20, he's pointing out there's a major difference between the authentic believer versus the apostate. Genuine believers have been anointed by the Holy One. More than likely, this is a reference to being immersed in the life of God by the Spirit. And this is something that happens when a person is born again. Did you know that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were baptized in His Spirit? It's not something that you seek afterward. No, this is something that happens the moment that a person is converted. The baptism of the Spirit refers to this act of God by which true believers become identified with Jesus Christ and they're placed in His body. This is the sovereign work of God. This happens at the moment we come to faith in Jesus. It's your initiation into the life of God. And so the indwelling of the Spirit, this refers to the Holy Spirit's taking up permanent residence in the life of the believer. And that's a wonderful thing. It it was initiated at Pentecost. And today it happens whenever a sinner trusts Jesus Christ and is born again. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. This isn't something that happens only to the spiritual elite 
This is not some super experience that happens well after salvation. No, this happens, it's true of every believer, every person who has genuinely come to faith in Jesus Christ, they're given the Spirit of God without measure. And isn't that just a wonderful truth? Now someone says, okay, well, I know that the Scripture talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit, and it also mentions something about the baptism of the Spirit. Is there a difference? Yes, there is a difference. There's only one baptism, but there are many fillings. Again, being immersed into the life of God, this happens when you get saved. But you see, each and every day that you live as a believer, you ought to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, under the control or the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can think of it this way. The baptism of the Spirit means that I belong to Christ's body, The filling of the Spirit means that my body belongs to Christ. The baptism means that the Spirit is resident, but the filling means that He is president. The baptism is final. The filling, this is something that is repeated as we submit ourselves to God. And that needs to happen every day in my life and your life as a believer. And so this baptism involves all other believers because it makes us one body of Christ. And yet the filling of the Spirit, this is something that's personal. This is something that's individual. And you remember that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to indwell believers. And the purpose would be to empower those believers to be his witnesses. That's why in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told his disciples to wait patiently in Jerusalem until Pentecost. Because at Pentecost... The Spirit of God would be given without measure. He would come to take up residence within those believers. And Jesus said the result of them being empowered by the Spirit would be they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So again, this is, this is a metaphor that John is using here, this idea of being anointed by the Holy One. Uh, he's using this metaphor to describe the work of God's Spirit in someone's life. This kind of goes back into the Old Testament and so much of the imagery there uh, where a person was set apart for some unique purpose. They were often anointed. I think about kings and priests and prophets, how they were all anointed in that particular way. The idea was they were being set apart by a very specific purpose. So the anointing that John is referring to here, this is a metaphor of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. So he's referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit to the person who has truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the most precious of gifts that you have ever received. There is no greater gift than God himself giving himself to you. And that's exactly what he's done for every child of God. He empowers you. He fills you with his divine life. He illuminates your mind to be able to understand the truth of the Bible. He comforts you in the midst of life's challenges and disappointments. In fact, Jesus promised his disciples that it would even be better, it would be to their advantage that he go away, because if he not go away, he couldn't send his spirit. And so in a very real way, and I know you've heard this said before, but the spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside of you. And Jesus refers to him as the comforter, the Spirit of God. He's the comforter. He's there, one who strengthens you to faithfully live out the calling that God has placed upon your life. 
And so the Christian life, it's not one of you trying to live for God. It's simply you dying to yourself and allowing the life of God to live through you as you yield and surrender to Him. And so it's the Spirit who takes the truth of Christ and makes it experiential. And it's this possession of the Holy Spirit that sets the child of God apart. And that's what the Apostle John wants his readers to be confident in. The fact that there's a difference between them versus these who were apostate. They had never come to faith in Christ. They had never received the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between those who were genuinely converted and those who were not. So not only do genuine believers possess the Spirit, but notice something else. John says that genuine believers know God's truth. They know the truth. Verse 20 is telling believers that we've all been anointed with the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus. The result is that we share in His life. And, listen to this, we've received knowledge of the truth. And this was so very important for John's readers to understand because those false teachers who were Gnostics, they claimed to be able to offer some hidden insight that couldn't be found anywhere else but in their teachings. And so the idea is these Gnostic teachers, these false teachers, I can imagine how they would come along and, and they would ask perhaps the unsuspecting within the church, have you received the anointing? To which a person would say, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. What are you talking about? And then according to these false teachers, this anointing was a special knowledge, an initiation into a secret, hidden knowledge of God. And these false teachers claimed to offer knowledge that was not available to anyone else outside of their teaching. By their claim, those in the church needed more than just the simple, plain truth of apostolic doctrine. No, they needed the insight of the culture. They needed some additional gnosis, some additional knowledge, rather than the simple knowledge being offered in the gospel. And John says to his readers, no, you've been given all that you need already in Jesus Christ. And so he's writing his letter to counter these claims by these false teachers. He's saying that knowledge of the truth, knowledge of God, this is not the privilege of a select few, but it's the birthright of every believer. There is no such thing as first-class and economy-class Christianity. Now, this is why John says what he does down in verse 27, where he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, some people want to rip that verse out of context and say, well, this, this means there's no need for me to belong to a local church, or there's no need for me to belong to a Sunday school class, or there's no need for me really to sit under the sound exposition of the scriptures that's not what John's referring to here because in fact he himself is teaching through what he's writing but when he says you have no need that anyone should teach you he's, he's encouraging his readers he's saying you don't need anything else you don't need anything more than what you've already been given in the gospel you don't need anything else beyond what has already been given to you in the sufficient authoritative word of the living God that's why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. <laughs> Which means as a believer, you've been given everything that you need to live an obedient and faithful life unto God. You've been given the Holy Spirit without measure. He's come to take up residence within your heart 
And you've been given the Word of God. You don't need anything else. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, He's the Spirit of truth. And when He comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things which are to come. And then Jesus says this, He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and will declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. So ultimately, the Holy Spirit has one overarching goal in the believer's life, and that is to glorify Jesus Christ and conform you as a believer to the image of Christ. The Spirit advertises Jesus and puts Him on display. Uh, By the way, there's sort of a certain irony in the way that the Holy Spirit operates because when He's really present, you're not thinking about Him at all. You're thinking about Jesus instead. And so the sign of a real Spirit-filled believer is someone who is just passionately in love with Jesus Christ as He's presented right here in the Gospels. J.I. Packer calls this the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit where he quietly turns away everyone else's attention away from himself and onto the Savior, the Lord Jesus. A good illustration of this, I I don't know if you've ever driven into Washington, D.C. at night, but if you're driving up, I guess, I-395 late at night and you've, you've looked over and you've seen just the Washington Monument sitting there like an ivory needle reaching up into a pitch black dark sky. Do you know that there are actually hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lights that shine on that monument? But I bet not a single one of you have ever thought about those lights or stopped to take a picture of those lights. <laughs> what is it that catches your attention? Well, it's, 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 it's the Washington Monument itself. And the whole purpose of those lights, it's to illuminate something else. If they're doing their job, you're not really thinking about those lights. No, you're caught up with the beauty of the monument against that night sky. In a similar way, that's how the Holy Spirit of God works. To glorify Christ. His main objective is to illuminate the gospel and bring glory to Jesus Christ. And the evidence of His work in your life will be an ever-increasing love for and likeness unto Jesus Christ. So John is saying the difference between these authentic believers versus those who are apostate, genuine believers have the Holy Spirit, genuine believers know the truth, and then notice he says something else. He says that genuine believers persevere in the faith. Notice how many times that he uses this word abide there in the verses, really from verse 24 through verse 27, at least five times. And it's one of his favorite words, this word abide. John uses it 22 times in 1 John. He uses it many times in his gospel. But this word abide means to remain. It carries this idea of perseverance. In reference to so much of the widespread confusion in the last days, Jesus said the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Does that mean that we somehow earn our salvation through our own effort. That's not what this means. What Jesus refers to and what John refers to here in this passage is that those who are truly in Jesus Christ, those who've truly been born again, 
Those in whom the Spirit of God has come to dwell, those who truly know Him, they will persevere in the faith. They will. And this is one of the reasons why so many writers in the New Testament called upon professing believers to examine their faith. See if it's legitimate. See if your faith genuinely passes the test. But the difference between these apostates versus these who are authentic believers, John says, you're persevering in the faith. They went out, he says, because they were never of you to begin with. They went out from us, but they were never of us to begin with. They had never genuinely been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. But the evidence that you belong to him, you're continuing. You're persevering. You're pressing on. Even in the midst of pressure, even when you're facing such hostility from the world for your faith, what you're holding, you're, you're holding up, you're pressing on, and this is evidence of the life of God at work in you. It was Adrian Rogers who said that faith that fizzles before it finishes was flawed from the first. Faith that fizzles before it finishes was flawed from the first. Now think about how John really, what he's saying here is so encouraging to these genuine believers. I imagine that they were tempted to be discouraged when faced with such a major defection in their ranks. Those who formerly had identified with them had now gone out from them and were preaching something totally different than the true faith. But here in this passage, John is saying that it all ultimately serves a good purpose. They went out from us in order that it might show that they never belonged to us to begin with. In other words, he's saying that this defection has this effect of purifying the church and in revealing both truth and untruth in vivid colors. You know, the only things that get counterfeited are valuable things. Cheap things, false things, they really don't ever get counterfeited. But the reason that there is counterfeit in the world, counterfeit religion, false religion, false ideas, is because there is truth. And ultimately, there's only the truth and the lie. There's the truth and there's the lie. And Jesus said, I am the truth. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. You know, we live in a day where a lot of people uh, say, you, you really just need to speak your own truth. But you know, it's really a bad piece of advice, isn't it? Because there is no such thing as my truth or your truth. There's only truth. God's truth. There's the truth and there's the lie. And the enemy wants to propagate the lie. He wants people to buy into the lie. And he wants to keep people deceived as to who Jesus Christ really is. But those who know Jesus, those who've come to know the truth of Jesus, those in whom the Holy Spirit has come to live, we know the difference between what's true and what's false. And that's what John is saying here in this passage of Scripture. I want to bring all this to a close this morning, but... How can we really live with confidence, even in the midst of a world that's rife with so much deception? The lie that just seems to be so prevalent in society and all over the world, and how the evil one wants to keep people blind to the truth. How can we live with confidence as God's people? Let me just give you a few concluding thoughts. In last days, 
In last days, seek fellowship with God above all else. Don't let a single day pass you by where you've not been found with your Bible open and in an attitude of prayer before the Lord. Because just as you need food to survive and just as you need fuel in your gas tank to make it from one place to another, so also you need to live each day by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that way you can spot what's counterfeit whenever it tries to raise its ugly head. In last days, seek fellowship with God. And then, in last days, stand firm in your faith. Truth is part of our birthright as the children of God. And Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide all believers into all truth. That doesn't mean we know every answer to every question. But just because we don't know the answer to everything does not mean we can't live with certainty. Because we can live with certainty. I can live with the conviction that God's word is truth. I can live with the conviction that Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. And I can live with the conviction that one of these days Jesus Christ is coming again. And so when false ideas come your way, you can filter them through what you know to be true. And you can remain firm in your conviction. Don't be shy about it. But confess the truth openly in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a believer, always speak the truth in love. And by the way, don't give up on a son or a daughter or someone you love or a friend who may be in a place where they're questioning what they believe. It can be a good thing because the truth of God always holds up under scrutiny. And then one final thing, in last days, stay focused on Jesus. No matter what the culture does, no matter what people say, uh, no matter what popular opinion is, all of that changes like the shifting sands or the tide that ebbs and flows. Truth remains. Truth is unchanging. Why? Because God is unchanging. He's immutable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can keep our eyes firmly fixed on him even when the world around us changes at a rapid pace. This is what the writer of Hebrews calls upon us to do in Hebrews 12 where he says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let's run with endurance the race of faith which is set before us. And ultimately, he says, looking unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. You can rest confident that the one who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion all the way up until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, if you've never by faith repented of your sins, and come to Jesus Christ for salvation. What's holding you back today? What's keeping you back? Right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith, you can confess your sin to God. and Call upon Jesus who died for your sin on the cross. Who rose again from the dead. Confess him as your Savior. Confess him as your Lord. And the scripture says that if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Not the world's ideas of who Jesus is, but what the Scripture says about who Jesus is. The historic faith delivered once for all to the saints. Listen to me. Jesus will save you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from. And you can trust him today. 
Lord, in Jesus' name, take these truths this morning, and we pray that you seal them up in our hearts. Lord, thank you for the truth. And Lord, how truth is under attack in so many ways in our day. But Lord, truth remains. Truth is constant. Truth is unchanging. Lord, because you are unchanging. And Lord, you said that we would know the truth, and the truth is what will set us free. And Lord, in a day where there's so much deception, Lord, may we as your people be discerning, filled with the Spirit, in love with Jesus, empowered by your Spirit to be Christ's witnesses, Lord, to our neighbors and ultimately to the nations. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.